Now I'm going to give you the word. All right. And this is certainly worth hearing. From the first verse, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And we call it being born again. And that's an expression that is bandied about and is much maligned today. But what do we mean by it? We mean putting our trust and confidence to be convinced of and to accept Christ as God's Son and Messiah. To accept his sacrifice of himself as sufficient and the only remedy for our sin, which makes us righteous in God's sight. When we do that, God imparts new life to us, and it's his precious eternal life, a life that will live forever. And he gives us the witness of the Spirit in our hearts that we are his children. And so we know we're born again. And that's what we mean by that. And John is telling them that. Whoever is believes that Jesus is Christ is born of God, he was trying to correct errors. Our topic today is on life, love, and truth. Now, how's that for a lot to cover in 30 minutes? Life, love, and truth. But we, we've got a handle on all of them. He says, everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Notice he doesn't say we should love or we ought to love, but we do love. And it starts with our love for God, and God puts that love in our hearts for others. We meet somebody, some of you I've never met, but I can see the Lord in your eyes and I can sense his spirit and you come upon a fellow believer and you have that love for them well that's the kind of love you know that's a feeling and it's emotion but love goes way beyond that and the world would recognize our love more if we put it more into action action uh, which we do I mean you people are you're wonderful people and we, we try to remember to take meals to those who are sick and to call on those and write notes to those who are ill. Or maybe a note of encouragement to a friend to uh, offer to clean their house if they need it. Sometimes, do we ever do that? That's hard. Or maybe offer to watch their children or to maybe do some shopping for them. There are special times when people need special love to be shown. And that is what stands out among God's people is the kind of love that we show toward one another. So we want to let our lives set us apart from unbelievers by the love that we show and express to others. But so we need to be alert to opportunities to help others who are hurting. And some of us who are older have a little more room in our schedules than some of the younger ones who still have children that are taken care of. So that's one way that God can use us as we get up in years. In verse 2 it says, We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commands. And that says the only way to show our love for our invisible God is to love our visible brothers and sisters. So then on verse 3 it says, God's commands are not burdensome. Well, what do you mean by that? We read the Old Testament book of Leviticus. You learn about burdensome commands. You learn about laws that are burdensome. And when Christ came, he replaced all of those laws, all of those burdensome commands with a command to love God and love one another. And how hard is that? Can we do that? Well, some people are not very lovable, but you know, if you show love toward them, you get love back for the most part. But that's what God's command is. So it's not burdensome, uh, but what about loving God? Well, when you begin to show love for God, God puts love in your heart for him. You turn to God. Uh, let's go back to the burdensome. You see burdensome laws and commands being adhered to around the world. If you've had a chance to travel, if you've gone to Asia or India, I spent a couple of summers in India, and people there were under tremendous weight of burden 
to try to please their 350 million gods or whatever it is. But that is burdensome. But people today in our culture say, oh, I want, wouldn't want to be a Christian because being a Christian is too hard. They think we lose our freedom to live like we want. And what they don't understand is that God changes us from the inside and he makes us want to live the way that pleases him. He says he gives you the desires of your heart. I used to think that meant he's going to give me everything I want. But what it means is he makes what you want to be the things that he wants you to have. He puts those desires. So I really want to please God. It's not, it's not that I have the desire uh, that he fulfills desires that are out there, you know, like go to Tahiti or whatever. That's not what he means. He means He's going to make you want to love your neighbor. He's going to make you want to go help somebody in need. And it's your joy to serve him and to please him. And you think about that when you were dating, and some of you, maybe you're still dating. I don't know. Hopefully you're still dating your husband, <laughs> trying to please your husband. Out of love for your husband, you do what you do for him. Not because he says, well, you've got to do that. You've got to have dinner on the table. You've got to clean the house. And you want the house to be clean. You want him to be comfortable when he comes home. You want him to have a nice meal. We serve God with that same kind of love. Because we love him, we do what he wants us to do. Well, there's something the Lord has been showing you that he wants you to do. Well, don't hesitate. Don't hold back. Get on track of pleasing God. And his love will flow even more to you. He'll teach you how to love. And you know, love is what it's all about in our faith. And it starts when we he puts... Christ in our heart and we love God and we love others and we love God more and we love others more and it just grows and it grows and it's going to keep growing throughout eternity this love that we have for others and for God is what's going to keep growing throughout eternity so what a joy what a blessing it is to serve a God who makes life so pleasant for us it doesn't mean it's easy some of us go through hard times but our loving him and pleasing him is not hard well, verse 4 says, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. Victory is expected. He overcomes the world. Now, the unsaved person feels right at home in the world because it's all he has. But our citizenship is in heaven, and our attitude toward the world is changed. And we need to recognize the world for what it is. It's Satan's playground, and he has a field day there. He wants to draw us away and trip us up and draw us into those things that are not pleasing. And he explains who is he who overcomes the world but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So overcoming the world means going against the flow, doing God's will in a culture that is bent on doing its own thing. To do this we must understand who we are, that we're God's children. We must use our resources as children of God, the word, the prayer, the armor. That's abiding, keeping sin confessed. We need to trust God to guide us throughout each day and focus on Christ as our example. And it's kind of worded a different way here by Warren Wiersbe in his book, Be Real. I thought I kind of condensed it. But when we cultivate friendship with Christ and abide in him, keep our sin confessed. We got into that last week. We've been doing that in John. Then this friendship with Christ influences our lives and our lives begin to change. Our thoughts become cleaner. Our conversations are more meaningful. Our desires are more wholesome. It's changing the desires of our hearts. Our friendships grow deeper into a deeper love. Our friendship with Christ grows into a deeper love for him. And it results in daily obedience. And we have a deep desire to please Christ. And through all this process, we become conformed.
to his image. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect, but we become more and more like him. And so that is a growing, maturing, overcoming faith. Well, if he prompts you to do something, you need, we need to be alert and responsive to his voice. You know, sometimes you know the Spirit says, don't do that. And you're just about to say something, and you know it might offend or criticize or put down or cut, and you think, maybe I shouldn't do that. Well, don't do it. Listen to the Spirit's voice. Don't pass, because he does warn you. He, he tells you what's the right thing to do. So listen to him, and it can stay out of a lot of trouble. We have the Spirit within us. Helps us with all of this. But we don't want to forget the armor, because the armor is so important. We put the armor on, and we get ready by renewing our trust in Christ. We start the day with him. We claim victory each day. And then he gives us victory, and we grow. I had such a wonderful time reading books. Liz gave me a stack of books, and I've read and read and read, and I thought, oh, I wish I could share all of this. And I can't, and I realize that the time is so limited that we can only share so much. And that's the sad thing, because there's so much out there, such wonderful things available to read. Because there's also a formula for defeat. You want to know what that is? Sometimes it's good to know how to be defeated so you can avoid it. You can recognize whether you're on the track to being defeated. I'll start reading it. I'll tell you. The first thing is friendship with the world, and that's from James 4.4. And next, we become spotted by the world, and that's from James 1.27. And then we start loving the world, and we've been into that in 1 John quite a bit about loving the world. And then we become conformed to the world. He squeezes us into his mold. So are we going to be conformed to the world? Are we going to be conformed to his image? We make the choices as to which direction we're going to go, which track we're going to be on each day. To verse 6, where we talk about the water and the blood, it says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. And if you're reading your Bible, if you're reading your New King James Bible or your King James Bible, it is like that in that verse. But then you go on to the next verses, and they're a little bit different. Well we got the water and the blood here. We start with water and blood. And I've talked with some of the leaders, and apparently most of you didn't have any real problem with that. You came up with probably three interpretations. Is that right? Water and the blood would be his, maybe his birth and his death, or maybe his baptism and his death, or maybe his death when the spear pierced his side and water and blood flowed out. Those are three interpretations that are used. And... I'm not going to pass judgment on it, but I'm going to tell you what I read in the commentaries because they all seem to have pretty much the same agreement, although they all mention these things, the same possibilities. Apparently, at the time John was writing, there was a false teaching which had begun to circulate, which was gaining a lot of prominence among the people, that Christ was a man who was born as a man. And when he stepped into the Jordan River to be baptized, John baptized him, and then the Spirit came and God indwelled him at that point and he became divine and God announced this is my son and whom I am well pleased and of course his ministry began then and they're saying oh he's just a man who was born as a man and then God came and it was kind of a platonic thing like Plato if you studied Plato about how there's the perfect out there and there's the image on earth and there's this perfect God and then there, we have this image of God and representation all very philosophical, very shadowy, very imagey. Christ was a real man and he was real God. He was both, he had to be both. Because he, if he hadn't been, he could not have died for our sins. His death would have been for himself and he would have been 
be still in the ground and we would still be in our sins. Our salvation is totally dependent on his divinity and his humanity because it's as a man that he could die for us but it's as God that he could pay the price that we could never pay. And John wanted to clarify this error at this point. So the water, it is thought, was at baptism, at his water baptism. He was identifying with us, doing what we had are told later to do. And it was obedience to God. God had told him to do it. He's saying, I'm doing what you want me to do. Which is like our faith is. We come to God and we say, here I am. From here on, I'm serving you. Now, not that Christ didn't serve him before, but his ministry began there. But it was kind of an identification. And then it was God speaking. And it says he bears witness. Well, God did bear witness. He spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So that's kind of what the commentaries say. That his witness was both visible and audible at Christ's baptism. And then the blood, that he died on the cross. And again, God witnessed it now he witnessed to it by there was the earthquake there was the darkness for three hours there were even in one of the passages that talks about the tombs opening up and people they saw people in the cities I won't go into that but you read that I think in Matthew so there were these supernatural events which attested to the supernatural man who was dying on the cross the Son of God to the extent that the centurion who was standing there said truly this was the Son of God and he'd seen executions before. Executions were happening every day in Rome, in Jerusalem. It was just a common occurrence. But this was truly the Son of God, and God testified to it. Then John cites the witness of the Spirit and says that it is truth. The Holy Spirit testifies to the truth of Christ. That's his job, to testify to the truth of Christ. He himself is truth, so how could we have a better witness? And he's active on earth today in the hearts of every believer, telling us that it's the truth, resonating with us. You hear truth, you know truth, because the Spirit tells you this is true. You read the word, you know it's true. The Romans 8.15 is where we see the verse, uh, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. But this confidence is something he gives us. So that's the threefold witness, the water, the blood, and the Spirit. And we're told that these three are one. They're in agreement. And Deuteronomy 19.15 tells us that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be established. Now, if you have a King James Version, which we have used, we've used the New King James Version, we go on and we have some additional words that I didn't read, and it goes on and it says, and those, those words, everybody is clear on that, were added late. They were added probably in the 15th or 16th century on a manuscript. So they weren't part of the original text. They don't violate the original text. They don't contradict it in any way. They don't say anything that's not true. They just weren't there. So the words that weren't there, I'll just tell you, it, goes, it starts with, and some of your Bibles have notes on this, but some of them don't. It says, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth. Those words are, are extra. It's not a big deal. I don't want to make a big deal about it because it doesn't change anything. There are three that bear witness, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The only thing is if you, the word could be on earth, the word on earth can be the Son, it can be the written word. And we do have the written word. We certainly have on earth, we have the written word that he left behind. 
which is just filled with attestation to who Christ is. From the very beginning at creation, when all three members of the Trinity were there at creation, to the very end in Revelation, when it's, uh, Christ will reign forever and ever, Christ is found throughout the Bible. All 66 books attest to it. And that was one of the things I so enjoyed reading, is how he is represented in every book of the Bible, over and over again. Then it goes on to say in verse 9, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. We hear a lot of voices. We hear people saying, you believe the Bible? You don't believe the Bible. And then they want you to believe all of this other stuff, you know. And men are being disproven all the time. All of these theories, these so-called theories about, well, I, I won't go into a lot of them. I mean, evolution, you know, supposedly we're supposed to believe evolution. And most biologists don't believe evolution. Just the few that are, that are determined they're going to push. I went to UC Berkeley when I was young and I wanted to learn the wisdom of the world and I was so excited to learn the wisdom of the world. And I, as a matter of fact, I got a PhD in linguistics, which is hanging somewhere. I think it's in a box. <laughs> and it frankly doesn't mean anything to me today except I spent seven years of my life working very hard on something that doesn't mean anything to me today. Now I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to the university and you shouldn't study, but the wisdom of this world is just what it is. It's world's wisdom. And to the extent that people are trying to discover how God created the world and what it's all about with their eye attuned to his word, interpreting it in line with his word, there's a lot to be learned. God said it's to the glory of kings to search out a matter. And it, it's interesting searching and going after knowledge. But God is the author of life and everything and the universe and our plan of salvation and us. And whose witness are you going to take? Are you going to take the witness of the world, which is constantly being revised and updated? And if you read an old textbook, you've got to throw it out because you know it's wrong. You have to get a new textbook. Whereas I can read Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible from, I don't know, a couple hundred years ago, and it's right. It's just the language is a little hard to read is all, but it's right because God's word is true. And when he says the wisdom, the testimony of God is higher. He's higher because he's the one that created everything. He's the one that knows all the answers, and we only learn what he lets us find out. So I'm going to take God's word for things. I decided that a long time ago. And the book of the Bible, which I'm studying, I've been studying for the last 30 years, has had far more of an impact on my life than any of that stuff I studied at UC Berkeley. And it's been far more valuable to me, and plus it's for eternity because I'm going to live with him forever. And this is not to put down study. I'm just saying, remember, man's world wisdom is what it is, but God's wisdom is higher. And that's what his point is there. He's the credible one. Well, verse 10 tells us, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. And we have hit that already. We who know Christ can attest to the fact that we're sons of God and that he's our Savior. And he gives us that assurance. Well, the second part of that verse goes on to say, He who does not believe God has made him a liar. And that's scary. But that's what you're doing. Anybody who attacks scripture and said, Oh, you, you don't believe that, do you? Surely you don't believe that. They're calling God a liar because God said it was true. Now, sometimes we don't understand exactly what it means, and we've got a few passages here today that we're not real clear on exactly what they mean. But we don't say, well, God's not true. 
we just say, well, I don't understand it. And someday when I get to heaven, all these things are going to clear up. But, you know, I, I used to think, oh, that's going to be good. They're all going to clear up. I don't even care anymore. I don't care whether they clear up because I'm going to be in heaven with the Lord and eternity is going to be wonderful. And those things on earth that never made sense here, I'm sure they'll clear up. But am I going to care? I'm not going to care. But what does your lifestyle say about God? Can people tell from you, watching you, that you believe God and that God is true? Is your life representing belief and trust in God? Verse 11 says, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I mentioned earlier what that life is. It's the divine, eternal life that Christ gives us. Christ indwells us. And we have eternal life now in us and through eternity. Notice it says, this life is in his son. He who has the son has life, and he who does not have the son of God does not have life. Well, we get attacked on that all the time, don't we? You Christians are so narrow. You think you have the only way to heaven? Anybody ever heard that? We hear it all the time. Have you ever heard anybody complain about there's only one way to be born physically? Wasn't God narrow about that? Really, now you think about it. Shouldn't he have had a whole smorgasbord of ways that people can come into this world well God is the author of life he made a way and there is a way there's one way to be born by the same token he's the author of eternal life and there is a way made by him revealed by him available to us to have eternal life can we complain that there's only one way no we praise God we rejoice and thank you God for showing me that way we accept the way and we go with it, and if we take it, we have life, and if we don't, we don't. It's the way it is. You know, if somebody uses that objection to you, you're talking to them, trying to talk to them about the Lord, and they say, well, you know, I, don't, I think there's more than one way to, to heaven. I think there's more than one way to know God. And I say, well, can you share your way with me? Does the way that you have, has it brought you into a personal relationship with God? Do you have peace in your heart? Do you have assurance of eternal life? And if they don't have those positive answers to those questions, that might open up an opportunity for you to share with them how they can have those things, because that's what people really want. They want peace and assurance and eternal life. In verse 13 it says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And if you have doubts, if you ever have doubts, that's a wonderful verse to learn. I memorized that when I was very young. It's a wonderful verse. Just memorize it, tuck it away. Satan tries to hit you, just come out with that verse. Uh, Earl Palmer, in his book that I read, said, The unregenerate person has a body and a soul. That person also has a human spirit, but it's empty and without God. Consequently, the unregenerate person, no matter how brilliant, loving, or decisive that person may be, is spiritually dead. He or she does not have life, in contrast to the regenerate person, indwelt by the spirit who has life. So we have that life. Okay, I'll hit quickly on the sin that leads to death. There is sin that leads to death. And if that shakes us up. What is it? Did I commit it? Well, if you're worried about it, you didn't. Because he does not deal with a person. God does not convict you of sin without providing a way of escape from sin. If, you, if he's calling you, he is forgiving you. But the sin that could lead to death could be that such a serious sin of a believer that it leads to physical death brought on by God as judgment. And... 
there's lots of examples in the Bible, for instance, Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 of Acts made a vow, they're going to bring all this, and they made a vow before the Holy Spirit. They didn't do it, and God zapped them right then. Now, it's too late to pray for them. I mean, they were gone. And sometimes you don't want to test God. Say, can I get away with this? Don't go there. Obey God. And then uh, the other sin could be the sin of a non-believer, which if a person remains a non-believer to his death, he will remain spiritually dead. And there is nothing you can do about that. Now you can pray for people, and we do pray for people. Now it talks about, I don't ask you to pray for such people. There are some people that, he doesn't say not to pray for them. He, there's no place there that says not to pray. He says, I don't ask you to pray for them. Well, if God tells you to pray, pray. Our duty is to pray when God convicts us to pray and leave the results to him. But sometimes your answer won't maybe be what you'd hoped for because that person is not willing to receive Christ. If they're not willing to receive Christ, God will not overrule them, even though he's not willing that any should perish. And you pray that verse back and back. God, you said you're not willing that any should perish. God will not overrule an individual. Verses 18 to 20, the point is that Christ has freed us from slavery to sin and keeps us safe from Satan's attacks. Satan can't sever our bond with Christ or take us out of the Lord's hand. We're in his hand, his hand is in the Father's hand. Satan can't get to us. He's going to try, things can be hard, but he can't get to us, so we're safe there. And then at the end, just remember that John is old. Soon all of the apostles are going to be dead, and he wants to hit it. It seems like he repeats himself, right? He's so concerned they're going to forget what's really important, so he says, we know that the Son of God has come, He's given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. He's trying to point out the true God from all those idols, all those other approaches. These are the important things to remember. And then he says, and I would say, remember this, stand on it, live by it, don't let anybody take it away from you. And it's kind of like a, a little catchphrase when he's leaving and by the way keep yourself from idols you know the Jews had had trouble with idols for year, for such a long time and they're all around them now and he says forget the idols don't go worshiping idols now we think we're so sophisticated we don't have trouble with idols but you know there are things that we put ahead of God and anything that comes before God can be an idol even a child even a child that we lavish so much love and attention on can you do that I'm not, I mean, we love our children, we are to love our children, but we've got to remember God is first. God is always first and what he wants for us to do. And there are other things, money, pra travel, prestige, recognition. I think you hit those in class. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I pray that there won't be more confusion now than there was before we came. I pray that you will speak to our hearts and that we will love you and that we will serve you and that you'll be pleased with our lives. Go with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.